0: Hope Church all right good morning everyone good morning. Good morning. hopefully you're doing well this morning we're going to continue in our uh, study of the book of Nehemiah and just a special welcome to each of you and especially to every, anyone visiting with us today make, please make yourself at home if you need something please don't hesitate to let us know and so we're going to, in the book of Nehemiah Um, In the Old Testament, and if you have your Bibles or your phone app and want to follow along there, you are more than welcome to. Um, I I just want to give just a little bit of background and history and kind of catch people up to where we are today. So in chapter 1, we find Nehemiah um, as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in the Persian Empire. Um, So he's in modern day um, Iran and he's a thousand miles from Jerusalem um, and he's there as cupbearer to the king and he is he has that responsibility and you know cupbearers were you know close to the king there's somebody um, you know viewed as trustworthy but they would obviously taste the wine before giving it to the king so if it had been poisoned somehow they would die instead of the king so it's kind of a you know one of those high risk Jobs if they, you know if there's like a reality show today or back then on like most dangerous jobs, you know that would be you know like one of those that you do you'd film Nehemiah as, as cupbearer. So that's um, what he did, but that gave him proximity to the king. and his brother Hananiah and others come from Jerusalem to visit him, and he asks like what is happening back in Jerusalem, and they tell him, you know the walls are down the gates are are burned the people are disheartened you know it's a it's a bad situation and Nehemiah um is is heartbroken over this but he doesn't just sit there in in, in a heartbroken state but rather he he goes to God in prayer he has fasting and prayer um, but he still has his job to do and so for for a Um, a period of time, a couple of months, he does not let um, the king know that he's upset until one day he's sad in the king's presence. We've talked about that a couple of times, how that's kind of a dangerous thing, because the king would just be like, I don't like sadness today, you know, off with your head, you know, you're out of here, you know, sort of thing, Um, or you're banished or whatever he felt like doing. Um, And so the king says this sadness isn't, you know, you're, Isn't from sickness? You're not sick, you know. This is a a sickness of heart or a sadness of heart. Like what's what's really going on with you? And Nehemiah tells him, um, praise and ask the Lord for help. And then, um, you know, the king asks him, you know, what can I do for you? And he says, basically, let me go back and rebuild, you know, the walls of Jerusalem, um, and please send me with wood and supplies and what I need. And Nehemiah is granted that request by King Artaxerxes. So he goes back. Now, in that area, remember, you know, you've got a long history of the Israelites there in Jerusalem and in that, you know, in that land and, you know, in conflict with various enemies who are kind of, even if they're not doing great because, you know, they are also subject to King Artaxerxes, they're at least a little bit happy that the Jewish people are also not doing great and that Jerusalem is in shambles, so it's like, yeah, things aren't super great for us, we're we're subject to this dude too, but (laughs) you know, look at them up there in Jerusalem and their city's all in shambles and hardly anybody lives there, um, relatively speaking, um, in terms of, you know, it's general population, the walls are down, the, the gates are burned, we're happy. You know, that's, they, you know, it's kinda like, if even if, like if your team is having a bad season, like your team is having a bad season, but but then, you know, your you know, your rival is in a big game and they lose and you're like, you know, we had a bad year, but I at least had a little bit of joy in seeing my rival team, you know, get crushed and their hearts broken and they lost in the championship game, and isn't that sweet, you know, sort of thing, right? So that's that that's you know kinda you can understand, right? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's right, folks. I'm just saying you can understand. Okay, that's, that's what I'm getting at there. Um, so Nehemiah, you know, travels back with his brother, with others, you know, the thousand miles back to Jerusalem. And, you know, he, he goes out at night. He surveys the situation Then he goes to the leaders and to the people and says, I have a plan to rebuild this. And they say, let's put our hands to the work. You know, let's do it. And so they all start working hard. But then those on the outside start to uh, make threats and, you know, want to see this work stopped. And then last week we talked about in chapter 5 there was a problem on the inside because some of the nobles, some of those with wealth and power were taking advantage of the situation that there had been famine, that there are taxes that have to be paid to Artaxerxes, and they are you know, lending um, grain to those who have less um, at a great interest rate. They're holding liens against their property. They're even taking their sons and daughters as you know, their their personal slaves or servants. And Nehemiah finds out about this and he is irate because back in, you know, in Susa, when Jewish people were under, um, you know, in slavery, if they ever had the opportunity to redeem them, to buy them and to give them their freedom, they would do it. And so he's like, you know, back, you know, in the capital, in, in the Persian Empire, we are actively spending our resources to free our brothers and sisters out of this situation. And here, back in Jerusalem, you're just like us, and you're actually doing the same thing that you know the, the outsiders would do to us. Like, they're going to make you livid right there. It's like, don't you get it? You know, well, what, are you, what are you doing here? And so he... Um, calls the people to repent. And what that means is, he calls them to turn from that, that wicked practice, to stop it, to make things right, and to turn away from it, and to not do that again. And the people agree to it. The people agree to it, and then he tells them, you know, he has them take an oath in front of the priest, in front of God, in front of everybody, and he Basically, he has his his like clothes, and he like shakes the dust out. And he says, "If any of you, you know, goes back on this, may you and your house be like shaken out. May you know all this come back basically on your own head." Like it's a, and the people all said, "Amen." You know, it's a it's a serious thing um, that he did. And so you're like, "Whoa, man! We had we had attack on the outside. We had this problem on the inside." And now we get to chapter 6, and it's not, it's not done yet. Um, so let's, um, again, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin in chapter 6. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning and to look into your word, and we pray that you would instruct us by it, and that you would help us to understand it and to apply it correctly to our lives. This morning, most of all, we're thankful, Jesus, that you came for us and that you paid the debts that we couldn't pay so that through faith we could be in right standing with, with our God and that our lives could be built on you, dear Jesus. And so help us to build our lives on you. Um, as not Nehemiah and those built the wall, Lord, help us to build on, on your foundation. Um, and Lord, give us strength, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> so verse chapter 6 verse 1 now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying come let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono but they thought to do me harm so I sent message to them saying I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down why should the work cease while you while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Now, you know, again, one might think that Sambalet Tobiah Geshem that these you know leaders are calling Nehemiah, okay, let's let's make some sort of a of a deal, some sort of a of a peace treaty. They they at least want that sort of appearance, you know, we'll meet in the Plain of Ona. We'll meet in kind of, you know, this more neutral sort of territory. But it's not so neutral. It's 25 miles um, from Jerusalem northwest. It's, you know, near the border of Samaria. And um, these people there are are planning to to pull Nehemiah away from his protection in a place where he's going to be outnumbered and vulnerable where they, you know, hope to, to, at minimum, capture him, but probably just kill him. You know, it says, but they thought to do me harm. You know, he sees through their, their plan. Um, and so he says, I can't come down. Why should the work cease? while I'll leave it and go down to you. So, again, we've talked about this before. Like, you know, he's headed north, but that's still down. You know, Jerusalem is up on this on this hill. No matter which direction you go, you're going down from Jerusalem, or you're going up to Jerusalem. It's about the altitude um, there, and that's one of the things that made Jerusalem so special: is that it's high up. Um, you know, the, you have to go. You know, it's on top of the hill, a city on a hill, right? It's on top of the hill, and it has water source up there on its own. You know, from springs, and so. You know, it's even if you're surrounded, you might eventually run out of food, but you're not going to run out of water. I mean, it's it's extremely stri- strategic. There's a reason why David, King David, sought to make it, you know, his his capital place because it was the best place um, for defense, and so a smaller, much smaller number of people could defend it. Uh, out on a plane, now. You know, you can't you can't fight one on ten anymore, or one on a hundred. You know, you're going to get wiped out um, because the enemy has has greater numbers. So he says, "I, I got this work to do," and so he does not You know, it's you know he's he's strategic in his response. He doesn't say, "I know you're just trying to get me out there so you can kill me." You know, he he doesn't accuse them of anything. He just says, I, I've got this great work that I'm doing. I can't come down you know, to you. He's wise in how he approaches that. He doesn't want to do or to say anything that the enemy can use against him. Uh, you know, he understands that, no, that though Nehemiah does not want to play political games, because he is a person of, of honesty and truth, he cannot play into the hands of their political games. You know he cannot do anything that's going to be able to take be taken back to King Artaxerxes and say, "Hey, remember you gave Nehemiah like this freedom and this you know you were generous to him and you did these things, but now he's betraying you here's what he's doing. here's our evidence. you know you can't give these people you can't give these people anything, not one bit of a question mark, and so he's very careful in how he answers, and that is there's some wisdom in that for us folks. you know, In, in different situations that we're in in life, sometimes um, a, a short answer, a truthful answer, but being wise as to how the other people, other people might want to use your words and being very cautious. Um, and then Sambalat, in verse 5, says, Sambalat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written... It was reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king and you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem saying there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king so come therefore and let us consult together. So again, you have that you know now that that accusation is being made more formally, because they're going to say, "Well, we can't just pull him out here and you know to, that's not working just to do that." So we're going to try to draw him out by being a little more um, direct um, in our accusation and in our uh, approach and saying, you know, here's what we're, what is being said. You know here's the rumor. Rumor has it. You're doing such and such. Well um yeah there's there's a side of this that's interesting because of course you know the the nation of, the people of the nation of Israel believe that God is going to eventually you know those with faith believe that God is eventually going to redeem them and to give them their kingdom back and to you know have them as a you know autonomous nation again like that's their yeah, I, th- I think we would be amiss to say that, that, that most of them weren't hoping for that you know at some point and would desire that um, and that's you know of course we see that in the history of, of Israel but also you know throughout throughout history I mean even even today we see example we see examples of that you know why are are people in, in Hong Kong protesting and people are being hurt and things are being burned and and all of this because pe- the people want more autonomy. They want more freedom, and that's a natural, like human desire, um, and, and a, it's a natural, like national desire, you know, to to not be controlled, you know, by another. So, um, you know, I, I I think we can we can say that, but they're also being wise, and they're they're missing, you know, Nehemiah has never said anything about being king or about, you know, leading a rebellion against King Artaxerxes. He, he is intent on doing his job and his role and, a, what, and what the Lord had laid on his heart to do. Not more than that. Not more than that. Um, and I think that that's an important thing because, you know, Nehemiah did not think of himself more highly, or take on a job that was a would be quote unquote a good thing to do, and then make it his. Now, God gave him to do a job to do, which was to rebuild the wall. We, there was no instruction for him go and set yourself up as king and lead a rebellion against the Persian Empire. If God had told him to do that, well, he would need to have faith and try to do that. But he. He also needed to be careful not to step outside of the bounds of what God had asked him to do. He needed to stay in his lane. The lane that God gave him to, to be in. Um, you, know, and, and, you know, that's a phrase that gets thrown around. I'll just say this, you know. The, the lane that we, you and I need to stay in is whatever one God puts you in. Not that, some other, not that you put yourself in. You know, a lot of people do that. A lot of people put themselves in a place and say, well, this is who I am and this is what I do. And that's far beneath what God has for that person. Because they don't view themselves with their identity in Christ. They're viewing themselves with their identity you know, in their own just natural uh, you know, abilities or how they view those. And, a lot, and you know, that can go one of two ways. It usually either goes to a gross underestimation Or gross overestimation. People generally think either way too lowly of themselves or way too highly of themselves. But for us, that's not the question. The question isn't, how do I view myself? The question is, how does God view me? The question is is not, what do I want to do? Or, what are the expectations of other people on my life? What are my family's expectations on me? What is society's expectations on me? What are my expectations for myself? Those aren't the questions we should be asking, folks. The question we should be asking is, who am I in Christ? Who am I in Christ? And what does my king want me to do? Because what if you, I mean, what what difference does it make if you know really if you want to do something different than your king does wants you to do? The only issue there is am I going to submit to Jesus or not? Right? Like, it's kind of inconsequential if I have a different opinion than what Jesus has. Well, Jesus, I think such and such. Well, who am I? I need to think, this is what Jesus has for me. That's the end of the story. It's just a question of whether I'm going to be obedient to that or not. This is what, you know, family wants, or this is what society wants. Well, okay, I'm going to have to navigate that. In some ways. But that's not the real issue. Because I'm not going to get to heaven and Jesus is like, well, you didn't, know, you didn't do what I asked you to do, but that's because your society was really pushing you to do this other thing. You're okay. You know, I wanted to do X, Y, and Z, but your mom and dad wanted you to be a fill-in-the-blank. So, no issues here. Folks, that's not... That's not how it works. You might have to navigate some difficult things and having some difficult conversations with, with family members, with cultural expectations, with whatever. But King Jesus said so. But we, we need to be able to be firm and to be able to say, I'm doing what I've been asked to do because King Jesus asked me to. But if we can't say that, then we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Right? We have to ask ourselves some serious questions. But this here, in this situation back with Nehemiah, it's a false accusation. And so in verse 8 he says, Then I said to them, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Love this part of this passage. So he's making, you know, this isn't true. You're inventing things. But he understands that the reason they were inventing those things is because they wanted to make the people afraid so that they would stop the work. Because, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Before we put these gates up, before we do any more here, um, you know it's going to be real bad for us if King Artaxerxes rolls his, you know, the Persian army up here to us. Like that's probably not going to go well for us. So maybe if these people are making this accusation, you know, that was the intent was was to put doubt in their heart so that they would stop the work. That's the enemy, the enemy, the true enemy. Satan is behind that. And one of his greatest tactics is always what? To plant seeds of doubt. Seeds of doubt such as, this isn't who you are in Christ. Seeds of doubt such as, God hasn't really asked you to do this. Seeds of doubt of you're not going to be successful. The opposition will be too great. No, you're going to fail. Don't set yourself up for disappointment. Don't set yourself up for failure. The enemy is always about planting seeds of doubt. Now, again, we have to be very confident Nehemiah is very confident that he is doing exactly what God had asked him to do. And how is he confident? How is he able to be confident? Number one, he started, when the problem arose, when it was brought to him, he did not go, well now here's what I need to do to fix everything. That's not what he did. He got on his knees and he prayed and he fasted. And there's A couple of months, I'm not saying he didn't eat for a couple of months, but I'm saying he had periods of fasting throughout those couple of months where he didn't eat anything. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and his tears were before God. And then the opportunity came, and he prayed, and he spoke, and God provided. So he's able to say that he asked God what he was supposed to do, and he waited for the Lord's reply and he heard and he was obedient to the first steps and God provided and so now he's able when opposition comes to stand he doesn't have to doubt and question and go well maybe God didn't ask me to do this in the first place because his process at the beginning was right and this is what happens when we short circuit process when we're making decisions in life even if we make the right decision the enemy is still able to use the seeds of doubt because we know we didn't have the right process and we were too reliant on ourselves. And so then when opposition comes, then we really do question, am I right? Was I right? But if we don't want to deal with that obstacle and trouble, back on the front end, we're going to take the right process, which is a lot of prayer, a lot of of seeking counsel and wisdom, From people who love God, because the scripture instructs us to do that as well. If you really want to know, you're going to fast and pray and seek God's face and seek good wisdom and advice. But we largely, as a Christian culture, at least in this country, have lost process. And so, therefore, because we've lost process, the proper process on the front end, and we want to short-circuit that because we want to microwave faith. We want it to be ready in 30 seconds. And, and, and then go. That, that's what, all the problems come on the back end. And then we act, you know, kind of surprised and shocked when we've made bad decisions. Or we, you know, we're like, well, I thought that this was the Lord wanted, but I guess, it's all. you know, then it's obvious it wasn't. Nehemiah, folks, doesn't have to deal with that. One of the things this book is for, it's not just about building a wall. This book is not just about building a wall. It's it's a process book for, for how you make decisions and how you deal with opposition in life. It's a process book. It gives you a blueprint of somebody who did it right and you can follow it. If you walk away we're just going man they built the wall they had some opposition Well okay I mean but that's not that's not what we're really trying to trying to get out of this we're trying to get out of it. this is this is gives us some great instruction for how we are to live life Now and then he prays, he's, and you know, we constantly see Nehemiah you know, praying throughout this book. And he says, now, and this is a short one you know, that we have recorded here. I mean, I know he had lots, lots and lots of prayers every day, but this, this these short praise here, Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. <coughs> you see, even though he was convinced, even though he, he knew he was doing the right thing, he still continuously needs the Lord's strength. There's never a point in this process where Nehemiah is able to go, okay, God, thanks for bringing me this far. I've got it now. I'm good. I don't need that daily communication, strength, help from you. I got it. Again, this is another thing we do. We start, sometimes we start on a process, we start well, and we're like, I got this now. Get a little confidence. I've, got a little. I've got it. Mm? It's amazing how quickly we can go from I've got it to I ain't got nothing. <laughs> you can go from I've got this to I ain't got nothing, real fast. Real fast. That's a prayer to take to heart. Oh God, strengthen my hands. And this is important because you know Nehemiah was about to face a surprise test. See, here's the thing, another thing about test in life. You know, you're in school and you had an exam and you know it's gonna be on this date and you could prepare for it. But wasn't it the worst? When the teacher, professor, whoever said, okay, today we're gonna have a pop quiz. And you're like, ooh, I didn't read what I was supposed to read last night. That's not gonna be this is not gonna be good. That unpreparedness. Well, you see, the thing about it is in our spiritual lives, the enemy normally doesn't, isn't like, hey, just so you know, tomorrow, pop quiz. There's something coming for extra for you tomorrow. You know, that's why we got to put, we have to put our armor on day by day, spiritually speaking, we have to put our armor on day by day because we don't know when the next test is coming the next temptation, the next trial. So verse 10 says, Afterward I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleiah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer, a spy. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee, and who is there such as I would go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these, their works, and the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So Shemaiah gives this appearance of caring for Nehemiah and caring for his physical safety. These sort of people are the worst. They're the worst, because they start by trying to gain trust, gain the person's confidence, knowing all along that they, their intention is to gain it for the purpose of betrayal, for the purpose of destruction. You know, today, I mean, these, these sorts of people, there are sorts of people just like Shemaiah all over the world. You know, these are the people that go into you know, poor villages, and they go in and talk to a family and say, you know, your, your son or your daughter can come with me to the city and, and we'll provide them education and job and, and all of these things. And you know, they give money and give gifts, provide food and you know, appear to be kind. To gain that trust for the purpose of what? For the purpose of the destruction, the, the trafficking of that young one. It's, I mean, the, the amount of evil that a human is capable of is unbelievable. Just unbelievable. People like this all over the world, in all times in history, that for their own personal gain, that for a buck, will do hideous things. And I kind of wonder with Shemaiah's like, and the curiosity in me is like, what was the price? How much would it take? How much would it take to try to to get him to try to hurt Nehemiah or to hurt anyone? You know, in some places, you know, there's people who will who will literally, you know, kill someone for for twenty bucks. Yeah, give me twenty dollars and I'll go pull the trigger. There are people, plenty of people in the world who are willing to do that for twenty dollars. But then it makes you ask the question. And murder's a pretty high, you know, threshold, right? But in terms of like talking about doing something evil. I mean that's that one's up there. So there are people who will do it for twenty, there are people do it for a hundred, a 1, thousand, ten thousand. 100,000. But you know, that's something that there should be no number on. (coughs) That it wouldn't matter how much. But what about other things in life? When we're tempted to make compromise. What's your number? You know, I'd hope that we'd all be able to say honestly before God in their own hearts, like, I don't have a number. Like, there isn't a number at which I I will intentionally betray my ethics and morality, that I would intentionally hurt someone or intentionally gain an unfair advantage. But you understand most people have a number, right? Most people have a number where they're going to lie for a certain amount. That a business deal is going to go south if they don't say X. And they're going to lose whatever money it is. What's their number? And there are people who say, you know, well, for a thousand dollars, you know, I won't do it. But if there's ten thousand dollars on the line, I'll do it. If there's a hundred thousand dollars on the line, I'll do it. You see, folks, we shouldn't have a number. Our ethics and morality that we are supposed to have in Christ, there should be, no number should be able to be attached to that. No number. Should not have a number. And we should not have a number... I mean, just... Or, or, and there should not be any position of power or advancement or anything else in life that we would take that we would have to compromise who we are in Jesus in order to have it. Because at the end of the day, we will always realize, not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth it. And you think if you could go back to Shemaiah and ask him at the end of the day, was it worth it? You know, once he's had to stand before God and judgment and go, was it worth it? Not worth it. But these are, I mean, there's a righteous anger that we should have for people who intentionally gain trust by doing nice things, by pretending to care In order to hurt others. And the reason that should make us righteously angry. Is because as followers of Jesus. We do nice things for people. In order to introduce them to our savior. In order to show them the love that God has for them. And so what happens. When people use promises of a better future or they use religion and they do so to take advantage of people it makes things harder for people to trust those of us who are honest and have good intentions and want to share the gospel things have changed you know in the you know mountainous um, area that we work in, in in Mexico but there was a phrase that the people in the mountains had for a long time, and it was, don't trust anyone with shoes. They didn't wear shoes, like regular shoes like like we have. So that was basically a phrase that they had to like, that was kind of their way of saying don't trust outsiders, but it was like, just don't trust anybody that wears shoes. They'd tell their kids, you know, don't trust anybody that wears shoes. Don't, Don't worry about what they tell you, because people would come up and they would... Try to take advantage of them. And make bad deals with them. Or go back, you know, make a deal and then go back on it. Well, that kind of makes it harder for people going in to share the gospel. Now, they're scared to take off their shoes, you know, and go barefoot, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, but you, don't, you get my point. Like, it makes things more difficult. It makes things more difficult for those with good intentions. Now there's another now how does Nehemiah know this guy doesn't really care for him, but that it's a trick, It's a trap. Well, And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? For, there's two questions. You first I ask, let me go back. Begin verse 11. Such a man as I flee. Number one, he sees that is if I show fear, what's that going to do for the rest of the community? If I show fear, what's that going to do for everybody else? Well, it's going to cause them to have fear. That, that's going to be a huge loss. It's like, I can't do it for that reason, but there's another reason. Should I go into the, in the, the temple to save my life? He can't like there's there's parts of the temple, and I think the, in the security part, he can't go into. He's not a Levite. There's a there's the book of Numbers, chapters three and chapter eighteen, that you know that's not his again, that's not his role. That's not his place. He can't go in there. He'd be breaking God's law. So, whenever somebody's advice it boils down to breaking God's law, you know that's a trap. That's a trick. Because God's not going to ask you to break his word. God's not going to ask you to do that. (laughs) Yeah, and especially as I mean. To, to go into the temple, I mean, that, that would, he would have lost everything in terms of his credibility and reputation. And he also would have been guilty before God. So he's asked, you know, save yourself by doing this thing that is against God. Instead of, trust God to, to do his will and to do what is best in this situation. I do think that is one of the things the enemy does to us. Like, again, I i mean, we've had this, I've, I've talked about this a little bit before, but like naturally, like in some things I'm a risk taker, but in other things I'm not. Like with, I mean, I, you know, I've said this before, like our kids are in the car seats facing backwards longer than most people's are. They are in seats, you know, longer, it's in general, than other people are. Like on the, I, I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of caution in some of those things of life. Um, but when it comes to the gospel, to the church, to the kingdom, we need to evaluate risk, but we cannot put risk like risk avoidance as our top priority obedience has to be our top priority. Now again, I'm not asking people, don't, don't take any risk in terms of the gospel that God is not asking you to take. I mean, I do think there are people who are like, you know what, I'm just going to go do this, and they, don't have, and they haven't done what Nehemiah did in the first chapters. But here's the question. Is there any safer place for Nehemiah than being in the center of God's will. You see, on a human perspective, somebody might argue, well, it could have been safer if he had just stayed back in the capital and stayed being cupbearer. Well, I mean, we already had a risky job. I mean, maybe he's not the best example to use for that, but... You, you get what I'm saying. Just like somebody, some, his brother going back with him, his brother could have been like, you know, I think I'd like to hang out here for a while. I can have a little shop and do X, whatever. But if God asks you to do it, it doesn't mean it's safe. It just means that that's the safest place you can be. It doesn't make it safe. It just means it's the safest place you can be. It's in the center of God's will. Finish this up, and, and this is about you know what Nehemiah has here in this situation because he had somebody that he was supposed to be able to trust. He is a, he is you know he's of the same people. He's supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to like check all the boxes of trustworthy. But as soon as he is asked to do something that is going to hurt the people and it is contrary to the will of God. To the, to the law of God. Nehemiah has this discernment. And that's the key word. He has the discernment to understand that this is a law, that this is a trap. Philippians chapter one, verses nine through eleven, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So there's knowledge and then appropriately using knowledge, discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's the purpose of having and exercising great discernment? It's for the glory and praise of God. So we would be without offense until the day of Christ. Folks, we need to have spiritual discernment. And that's a prayer. If we pray God strengthen our hands, we, all, we can also pray, Lord, give me discernment to know and distinguish what your will is and what it isn't. And what is right and what is wrong in your sight. Not my sight, but God's sight. Proverbs 2, 1-9 through 9 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. That's powerful. That's a powerful passage. But, you know, we are to seek wisdom, knowledge, discernment, we are to treasure those and to seek those as if they are treasure. And, and I think, you know, we, we live in a time, I don't, I don't think we live in a time, I know we live in a time, it's factual that we live in a time where there is more information and more noise than at any point in human history. I mean, the amount of, of just information that is being produced on a daily basis is impossible for anybody to keep up with. It's just so much. Does that make us actually more knowledgeable? Does that actually make us more wise or give us greater discernment? In general, the answer to that is no. No. Because we're not making necessarily the best choices about what, of all of that information and all of that data that we are putting actually into our heads, into our brains. And so one of the things I think we have to do that's a little bit different, I mean there's always been junk that's been available for people in every culture in every top, right? But it was a limited amount, a little bit easier to say, this is quality and this is not quality. This is going to lead you to wisdom and understanding, and this is foolishness. But now, with stuff everywhere, we need more discernment than people I think needed in the past. We actually need more discernment, because there's just a lot more out there. We also need some discernment and discipline, like, what am I taking in that's good, that's quality, that's going to make me more like Jesus? And what is just, I'm relaxing, and it's mind-numbing, and I'm just kind of here. And what, are those, what do those percentages look like? And I'm just asking myself that question. I'm asking all of us that question this morning. So if I have, for every 10 hours of stuff that I read, articles, Facebook, you know, social media, Facebook, the Bible, other books, TV, TV that I see, like just everything that is media of some form. If I've got 10 hours, what percent of it helps me to be more like Jesus? What percent of it is neutral and what percent of it is harmful? Well, what if we started keeping a little bit of track of that and evaluating that? I guess the yeah, I guess the question again the question that I have yeah I guess the question that I have to ask myself and we shall ask all that, is like would I want everybody to know that like would I post that as my status Facebook status or Instagram or whatever or would I wear a t-shirt that said 10 hours 1 hour good 8 hours mind numbing 1 hour negative Like, would I want to wear that shirt. You know, and and so I think we need to ask ourselves that question. Because when we're doing the things that the Lord wants us to do, it's, it's amazing the capacity. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And then we binge Netflix for the rest of the year. No, sorry, it didn't say it. It didn't say that. I was just sorry. Sorry, one of these modern versions. Of the, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Kidding. All right. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Because they're looking at it and going, you know, the number of people they had, the opposition they had, and they still accomplished what they set out to do in, in the amount of time they did it like God was with them. Like they had to acknowledge it. Now with that, it's sad because with that came an opportunity. As others at different points in history did and go, yep, Yahweh is a true and living God. We've, we better be right with him too. Like, like how do we tell us? How do we make peace with God? There was an opportunity there for that. Instead of just acknowledging intellectually God was with them, but yet still being resistant in their hearts. And again, here we don't know the whole story, because there may be individuals that are making different decisions and seeing that and going, hmm, and we have some of those individuals recorded in the scripture for us. Rahab and Jericho. Not just going, yeah, intellectually, I understand God is with you, but I want to follow. And in those days, verse 17 through 19, we'll finish here shortly. And in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, the son of Jehonahan, had married the daughter of Meshuzalem, the son of Barakiah. So basically, there's like familial reasons why people are loyal to somebody they shouldn't be loyal to. And also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. And Tobiah um, sent letters to frighten me. So again, you know, like, there's manipulation and problems that are here. There are motivations behind these quote-unquote good things. But ultimately, Tobiah is still an enemy. And so even though they had built the wall, it didn't mean that the, that the other part of the battle was finished. still had a real enemy. So again, sometimes we, we have something in life, we complete a task, and we feel good, and we can let our guard down. Nehemiah here has wisdom and discernment. The first, we're finished with the first three verses of chapter seven. It says, Then it was, when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So they've accomplished their task, but, but Nehemiah has a very clear understanding that the threat has not passed. And so he's like, we still need to make precautions. So he appoints you know, people to various tasks that need to be accomplished. He's wise about that. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to do everything. No, he hands off responsibility. He hands off responsibility to people that he can trust. He can trust his brother. He knows his character. He can trust Hananiah, similar name. Um, He says, for he was a faithful man. Basically, he says he's a faithful man. He fears God more than most people do. Okay, like he's excelled in his, his life. And then he gives them these practical things like Hey, don't, you know, dawn breaks, don't go and open the door. If it don't open the gates of the city. There might be people who have come up, you know, in the night waiting. And if most of the city is still asleep, we can get caught off guard. So wait till the sun's hot. You wait till later, a little bit later in the day, then open. Make sure you have your guards, put them in these different places. So he makes these practical. Practical things. So you come to have Jesus as Savior. You know, that's the first thing. We're talking about spiritual life. First thing you have to do is you have to be, you know, in, in, his, in God's family. I mean, first thing you have to do is, is humble yourself, repent, turn, believe in Jesus, say, you know, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Like, that's where it starts. Like, we're born again, we're made a new creation. But that's not the end of the story. Now there needs to be a life of growing in the knowledge and understanding of of Jesus and to walk in his ways. And part of that is being wise and, and having a guard. What is your guard? What is your protection? Well, prayer, that's a guard on your life. It's hard to sin and pray at the same time. Your Bible? You know, Nehemiah doesn't fall into a trap because he knows what the Bible says. So your Bible is a guard. The Holy Spirit, we have an advantage that they didn't have in the Old Testament. You believe in Jesus. God, through the Holy Spirit, comes and makes his home within you and indwells you. You have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the help of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Boom, you have access to that from within. That's awesome. You've got the church, other people in your life that if you are in community with and connected to and you give permission for people to give accountability, then that's a guard. You can, you know, we have a trust that other people are going to help protect us when we are open with them. And we're also making a commitment to guard those other people like, I'm going to help guard you, and you're going to help guard me. Now, again, that's not something, when, if that's, when that's like forced, that becomes kind of cultish. That's kind of weird. We don't, we don't do that. Right. But, you know, we should voluntarily open up and say, look, if, if I'm struggling in this area of life, I need to be vulnerable about that because I need you to be, help be a guard and help pr- protect me. So that's, those are things that we do. And then there's, there's about having a good offense. And that offense means I want to share the love of Jesus and the witness of Jesus, you know, in the world. Because that's going to keep me focused on my mission. To go and share with my neighbors and coworkers and other people that I'm around. And that's, but now with that, gonna, you know, there's more attack coming with that. But, you know, the, the, the most attack that I, I mean, I'm convinced that people who are actively trying to love people and be generous and share, you know, the good news and taking advantage of open doors that come and help the poor and help the sick and all of those, you know, sorts of things that the scripture instructs us to do are much less vulnerable to attack than those who are spiritually lethargic. And kind of like not looking to do too much. That's a much greater place of vulnerability. That's a much greater place of vulnerability. So yes, there comes attack when you 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 start going and, and trying to make a difference in the world, yes. But I'm telling you, that is less dangerous. It's less dangerous to be on the front line than to be not in the battle when you're supposed to be. That's a really dangerous place to be. So... So that's the one you don't see coming. <laughs> you are in tag battle, you got your armor, right? You're ready. You're ready. You're just kind of sitting over there on the sideline. All of a sudden, you know, one of those arrows, arrows is just going to come out of nowhere. And <laughs> you're like, man, didn't have, any, didn't have armor up. Didn't really think I was in this battle. Well, you, you are, just by default. So let's pray. And ask the Lord to strengthen us and to give us discernment. And so, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. And we do pray for strength and for discernment. Help us to be able to navigate this world and culture that we're in. In a way that glorifies and honors you and that we don't compromise who we are in your son. We remember this morning that you sent the son, your son to the cross for our benefit. As we take the bread and cup this morning, we say thank you and please help us, we pray. Encourage us, we pray, Lord. Help us to build our lives on you, dear Jesus. That this church we built on you Dear Jesus, we thank you that you love us. It's in your precious name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. We have our um, short open time this morning. And if you have scripture to read, a song to request, um, a prayer to pray, just asking this this time that the focus is on Jesus and what he's done for us. And um, if you need anything... Um, to talk about in, in your in your life, just please uh, stay a little bit after, and we'll be happy to to speak with you and pray with you as long as you need.